welcome to the Extraordinary Moms Podcast. I'm Jessica Dahlquist, your host, and every week I interview a different mom who shares their motherhood journey and the lessons they've learned along the way. If I've learned anything from interviewing such a wide range of moms, it's that no two moms parent in the same way. We should celebrate that and learn from one another. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast today, and if you like what you hear, please share the show with a friend. Hey everyone, I have such a tender episode for you today. My guest is Lisa Apollo. She wrote the book, Life Can Be Good Again. And if life can be good for her, no matter what you are going through, life can be good for you too. Lisa understands this so deeply because as a mom of seven, one night she went to bed married and woke up a widow and single mom of those seven kids the next day. She wrestled with impossible questions about their future and she ended up finding extreme joy and hope and fulfillment in the years as they went on. And there's always a plan B, especially when you realize God's purpose for your life. She's an extraordinary mom and I cannot wait for you to hear from Lisa all about how life can be good again. All right. I'm so excited to be chatting with Lisa Apollo today. Hi, Lisa. Hi. How are you doing, Jessica? I'm good. Where am I speaking to you from today? So I'm in Florida. I actually am a born and raised Florida girl and only live a couple hours from where I was born and raised. That's so awesome. Have you ever lived anywhere else? Um, Only when I was like two years old. My dad was in the service. So that doesn't, you know, I was in Memphis, Tennessee on Mm -hmm. a on a station there. But otherwise, you know, I've been in different towns and cities around Florida but um, always, yeah, stayed here. Yeah, yeah. We lived on the East Coast for a little bit. My husband was in the service as well, and it always blew my mind when people from the East Coast would come and fly all the way out to like Hawaii, because I'm a California person. I'm in California right now, San Diego person, and so Hawaii is like, you know, a four-hour flight from where I am, so that's like your tropical destination, but for East Coast people, they spend literally as much time as I would spend getting to Europe just to get to Hawaii when you have the Caribbean, you have Florida, you have the Keys, you have all these things, and it always kind of blows my mind. It's true, I know, and the Keys is actually one of the best kept secrets. Yeah. You know, people do go down to the Caribbean, but you can go down just, yeah, the Keys are gorgeous. They're yeah. beautiful. Yeah, my parents have been down there. I have not, and I would love to because all their pictures are just so gorgeous. So that's so fun. Well, Lisa, I'm so excited to be chatting with you about your motherhood journey. You have quite the story, and I'm so excited to hear more and to to feel you know grateful. I think we all feel grateful when we hear about people that have suffered losses and to just have that shift in perspective when it's like life is short, life is fragile. And even when the unexpected happens, there's still hope and there's still life after some of those really extreme challenges. Is that what you found in your own life? I did. And, you know, it wasn't immediate. I think maybe I, um, in fact, I wondered, will I ever smile again? Even though, you know, I had faith that God was going to be faithful to, I, you know, I, I knew that he would be faithful to us, but I had no idea how that would pan out, how he would, could heal eight broken hearts, how he could, mm. you know, walk us through. So yeah. you know, when, when you're thrown into something that's super sudden, even, even the most well-meaning, you know, people can wonder how in the world they're going to smile again. Right. Yeah, and I've heard about the guilt associated sometimes with once you do feel that ability to smile again and to laugh and to find joy, you're like, "Uh uh-oh, 
am I supposed to? So we'll get into that. But Lisa, you're a mom of seven. So will you just give a little background on yourself and your family and tell me a little bit about your motherhood journey? Sure. Um, I never I did not start out wanting seven. Okay. Um, you know, I liked all those books with like large families growing up, but that was the only thing I wanted three. My husband wanted two. So I had to make a deal with him to get to three. And then God just kind of vetoed us. We got number four and we got number five. At that point we had one girl and four boys. We were at five in like six years, actually seven years. So they were just stair stepped. And I had been an attorney. I thought I would always work and at least part time and and then, you know, have my kids in school. I had just had my life mapped out. And once I got to number four, I I had been full time, part time, flex time. I just came home, you know, full time, put my put my career on hold a bit. And, um, and then at some point, so here we were five, you know, never expected to have that large of a family, you know, God just worked on us again. And through a series of events, when I thought we had closed all the doors to having kids, um, we opened those doors again medically and, um, we had number six and seven. It was not so easy getting pregnant with them. It was a little bit more, you know, I was older at that point. Um, I had had my tubes tied and untied. I don't know if you want to get wow, into that. Yeah. You know, that's a little maybe TMI for some people, but Hey, we go through that in motherhood. Yeah. And for me, it was not pining for a baby. It was honestly not. I had my hands full. It was just just obedience to what God was putting on my heart at the time. And so anyway, we ended up with seven children. And, you know, man, it was like more than I could have asked or imagined. Life was certainly not perfect. We had parenting struggles and marriage struggles and financial issues. But I think, you know, when I laid my head on the pillow at night, I thought this this is all I could ever want. I'm sure so many of you can relate to exactly what Lisa is describing, feeling like your life is full and bursting at the seams, and maybe like there's not enough time, you're fulfilled and yet often drained. That's how I feel as well. And that is why I wanted to share with you a little elixir called Magic Mind. Magic Mind is the world's first productivity drink. After only three days of drinking Magic Mind, I was shocked with the level of productivity. When I woke up, I just made it part of my morning routine, took that shot of goodness, and boy, was I ready to go. I was able to focus. I was able to just start checking things off my list, and you're going to love that productivity feeling even when you haven't had a bunch of caffeine. There's no better feeling. Plus, I have this brain fog thing, and this helps my memory. It helps me really, really focus because there's lots of unique ingredients like Bacopa Monieri. <laughs> it's a natural nootropic that helps with procrastination. So if you're putting off those to-dos, get started first thing by taking your magic mind and then getting to work. I love magic mind because I know a lot of you are looking to intake less caffeine, but still wanting to have that energy. And I think magic mind is your solution. So I totally recommend you trying out Magic Mind. See for yourself what a difference it can make. Go to magicmind.co slash EEP and join the community of go-getters. You can also use my discount code EEP20 to get 40% off your first subscription or 20% off a one-time purchase. My 40% off code only lasts 10 days. So hurry up, get Magic Mind for yourself and see what a difference it can make. Again, that's magicmind.co slash EEP and use my code EEP20 for 40% off your first subscription or 20% off a first time purchase. I have four boys, Lisa, and 
so I had my first three and was thinking, that's it. Like this is this is our crew. And I was happy and I just felt that like pour into what you have. That's just the impression that I had. And so I was. And on my son's fifth birthday, my youngest son's, we found out we were pregnant with the fourth one. And it has been the best gift, unexpected gift ever because having big kids and a baby and having the difference in perspective of having a 12-year-old and having parented for 12 years now and not that I'm doing anything, you know, more right or wrong than the other, but just the perspective that I have of what matters more than other. I can say I've figured that out. What are the what are the majors I need to major on and the minors that I can let go? And it has been so wonderful to just hold this baby and sit a little longer and enjoy and then have the older kids be able to see and enjoy this little life in our home. It has been so special. It is. I mean, the relationships, my oldest was actually 15 when my youngest was born. And um, so they didn't spend a lot of time in the house together before he went off to college. You know, not not a lot of time that she remembers. Um, But yeah, what a sweet relationship. And even in the years since he's gone off to college, to see him continue to do things with her especially or, you know, to do things with my, um, his, his youngest little brother. It's, it's very sweet to see that. Yeah. So what's the age range right now of your kids? So there's 15 years um, between, okay, so right now my youngest is 15 and my oldest is 29. Okay. So it's like, yeah, I've got a lot of olders now. They were all little at once and then they were all kind of, you know, yeah. leaving the nest at once, which was just a poignant time. I had shed a lot of tears over that. And then they kind of all got, you know, got out of college and married at once. So I've got actually got my older five are, you know, in their jobs and they're married. And then I have two at home uh, who would uh, 15 and 17. Yeah. An interesting transition that we talk a lot about is going from having younger age kids to building good communication with our teenagers. And we talk a lot about that transition from that to teenagers. What I think we talk about less is transitioning to parenting teenagers to adults when they're out of the home and they're making their own decisions and they're not under your roof and under your rules and under your faith. And you know, like a lot of these things they are taking ownership of. And sometimes they're doing the things that make us proud and other times they're doing things where it's like, Ugh, like you're just kind of white, white knuckling, but they're adults. What have you learned about that process of kids leaving the nest and maintaining great relationships and supporting them without being overbearing and allowing that to transition there is an arc to their well so far my oldest is 29 but I have seen an arc in several of them several of them that were making decisions that weren't horrid but they definitely weren't what I thought was going to be a good step for them you know just trusting the parenting that I had done. I wish I had trusted the parenting that I had done in mm. all those years. Mm. Um, my daughter would say to me, mom, you know, we'd be on a phone call and then she'd say to me later, mom, you don't think I'm listening to you. Cause she would always have all of her rebuttals, you know, as I was telling, telling her something. Um, but she said, but I am. Mm. And I think in the end, she, that's true. You know, the choices that she ended up making, um, bear that out. I think for another one, I was just the other day, um, he's a pilot. And so I was just thinking, wow, to see this one making decisions now and see how he has stepped up in ways that of course I prayed for. Um, 
it just gives me hope. Just like you said, that perspective for the two that are still in, you know, the mm-hmm. ones that are still in your home. Mm-hmm. Listen, the, the, all, every bit of parenting you're doing when they are little and when they are in grade school and when they are in teens is not wasted. You may not see the fruit of that. And it may be a long time before you see that bear out, but that is not wasted discipleship and parenting and instruction and um yeah there comes a point where we pull back and we don't even get a say you know we don't mm-hmm. get even get a say um but to know that they they can come to us keep those lines open and and you have to just choose not to say something so that when it matters they'll come back to you yeah and um that's what I found is just, just praying more, keeping my mouth quiet more, speaking gently when it was appropriate where I could. Sometimes I didn't get a chance mm-hmm. and just, you know, waiting till they came back to me to ask, you know, to ask. Yeah. I love how your daughter pointed out, like, I am listening. And it's not just a matter of them listening in a certain conversation or in a certain circumstance. Like you have years of history with them, years of parenting, years of pouring into them values and life lessons and wisdom. And what they choose to do with that is up to them. But ultimately, it's not like they don't know what you already think, right? Like you feel like I've just I've just gotta get I've just gotta get my perspective and I've gotta get my opinion and I gotta I just gotta say this. I'm just trying this for your good. I'm saying this for your good. But like, don't you think they probably already know? because of how you parented them for the year. So if there's a comment that you feel like you need, quote unquote, need to make or need to say, do they already know it? Because would that conversation help or hurt that situation and feel like you're encroaching when you don't need to? Yeah. It's hard though. You're exactly right. The other thing is that um, a lot of times just sitting back because, you know, in a house full of many siblings, sometimes their sibling can say something in a way that is received a lot better. And especially Mm. in my story, you know, which we'll get into. Um, So just, I would never ask a sibling to step up and do that, to take that role. That has to be very, very um, organic. And they have to have that kind of relationship. But I've watched it play out. Mm. We're just on a more peer level, a more sibling level. A a sibling can say something that it's not coming across as um, authoritarian or in their, you know, mistrustful or anything and they can really receive it better right yeah absolutely and when it when we say oh you know young child like I've been there I understand sometimes our kids just can't see that from us they can't picture us as a young person making these same mistakes or battling these same demons or whatever it is but coming from a sibling who's nearer to those circumstances or legitimately are facing things that we did not have to face you know, 30 years ago in our growing up years. We did not have the cell phone, the technology, the social media, like all of these things that our kids are facing in a brand new way now. And so having that camaraderie among the children, I think is huge. And that's part of why siblings are are so wonderful. Yeah. So one of the major things that we want to talk about today is the sudden loss of your husband. And I've had many, many um, women on that have lost... Um, has been some unexpectedly, some after different battles. And oh, that is a lot. It is a lot to become a single parent. And 
depending upon the age of your kids and the relationship and how and everything, it can really play out differently. But will you just share a little bit about your story of loss? Sure. So our, my, our loss was 10 years ago, Okay. which, you know, if I had never walked this path, I would have thought, well, 10 years is a long time, but grief is weird and it warps time. And it is both a long time. A lot of life has happened in those 10 years and it is a short time. Um, sometimes it can still feel fresh, even though I'm not an act that act of raw grief, you know, um, my husband died very suddenly, very unexpectedly. You know, one night we were having pizza together as a family and planning to head out for a big, you know, extended family trip for my parents' anniversary. And I woke up the next morning, wait, um, really listening to his final breaths on the pillow next to me. Hmm. So as far as we knew, there had been nothing that um, we could see that was wrong. He didn't appear, you know, to have any kind of symptoms that would have caused us to have them checked out. So there was a lot there just wondering, and we know now what happened, you know, there was an underlying condition that caused his heart to um, basically go into, basically just uh, go into, you know, have a heart attack. Um, But at the time it was so sudden and then, mm. you know, just, just life up ending so unexpectedly and honestly, as hard as grief was for me, it was, was harder watching my children grieve, knowing that I couldn't fix it, knowing that this was something, you know, as moms, we want to go in and we want to be able to make things better for them. And there are just some situations where we can't, we cannot take away their own pain. And I didn't even know what it felt like to lose a dad. I knew what it felt like to lose a husband, but my own father was still alive. And so I couldn't even put myself in their shoes. I remember the night before when he was, or that, that morning when he was rushed to the emergency room and all my kids were awakened because, you know, we've been awakened by it. Even it was like dark in the morning. And I walked up to their room to tell them I was headed to the hospital and they were all um, kind of huddled together on the floor, crying, arms wrapped around each other. It was still dark in their room, no lights on. And they were just audibly crying. And I wanted to say, it's going to be okay. And as those words formed on my lips, I realized I couldn't make this promise to them. Hmm. And so I prayed with them and I said, the only thing I could, which is, you know, I will be back. But, you know, watching my children walk through grief and having to help them navigate their grief, even today, because it'll still show up today in in ways, has been something I never would have imagined doing as a mom. Mm. Yeah. And as you're processing this, and like you said, like you haven't lost a father, but here you're grieving the loss of your husband, they're grieving the loss of their dad, everybody grieves differently. And so you holding yourself together as much as you can to be able to function as the sole remaining parent, what a burden, while also being like, hey, I need to also allow myself space to feel what I feel and to grieve this loss of my dear love. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot. Grief is overwhelming. I mean, it's it's physically, mentally, really spiritually, and emotionally exhausting. Yeah. And... I even now people will say to me, I'm just so tired. And I remember how exhausted I felt. Not because not only are you doing, especially in this situation, you're doing the job that was meant for two people Mm -hmm. and that for all those years, two people were doing, 
but you're just walking it yourself. Right. Yeah. I have a dear friend that lost her husband after um, a battle with a brain tumor and she has two children and she's remarked how differently her children have grieved and responded and how one likes to talk more than the other about it and and just how different that can be. And so I can only imagine the disparity in in coping mechanisms and in processing of seven children and, and all eight of you having to go through that. How did you help address individually kind of where each child was at and especially in those early days yes you are right kids nobody grieves the same and um you know the four-year-old is going to grieve differently than my teens my boys grieve differently than my girls Mm -hmm. um so so the younger they are the more concrete they are they'll just tell you exactly what they're feeling whenever they're feeling it it's usually a very in opportune times, I remember actually my older daughter winning this like big, um, it's called Distinguished Young Woman. It was like a scholarship um, thing for all of Florida. And she was going on to nationals. It was like a big deal. And we were walking onto the stage and the confetti is coming down, just like you think. And she's got these roses in her hand and our family is walking on to congratulate her. And in my ear, I'm holding my my little one, and in my ear, she's saying, "I miss daddy, I miss daddy," and just the the different needs of that moment, you know, mm-hmm. to be able to congratulate and celebrate my daughter, and then meet the needs of this little one who is feeling her dad in this moment. Um, so little ones will come out and just tell you what they're feeling. They'll tell a stranger. If you're a teacher, if you are a coach and you are with little ones, then you know this, that they tell you what's what's on their mind. Um, so for, yeah, my little one for like every day over a year in the middle of the car, you know, driving somewhere, she would just break out. I miss daddy. And I had to coach myself to say, Lisa, every day, you know, if you have the same conversation with her, just stay patient with it because she was trying to absorb and wrap her mind around the permanency of of death Mm. of her dad never coming home my six-year-old was would kind of play with all the neighborhood kids during the day you would never know anything was different but in the quiet of bedtime is when he would always the tears would come the you know conversation would open up and i would be able to talk to him very honestly um, for my teens, they were all boys, my teens and tweens, they wanted to go back to life as normal very quickly. They didn't want to be that kid who, you know, fill in the blank. And so, um, I found that I had to keep the conversation open for them. Kind of, they weren't going to volunteer a lot of like, and not with open-ended questions, like, how are you feeling? Mm-hmm. They're, they're not going to answer that. But, you know, keeping it open with things like your daddy would have loved this or he would have been so proud of you or um, telling stories about Dan and just we read books together. We read a lot of books. We were already, always a read aloud family. And so I began to pull books that talked about loss, um, even like fictionally, you know, with families who were navigating it just to keep that conversation open so that they could join that conversation as they were ready rather than having to start it. Yeah, I think that um, is so smart. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that is so, so smart, kind of having one degree of separation from being able to talk about these issues and and feeling these feelings and and what grief looks like for somebody else because sometimes it just hits too close to home to be like, how are you feeling today? And it's just sometimes you can't even name it because you're just feeling so deeply, I would imagine. 
Yeah. And for for young kids, really any kids, they grow into their grief. Hmm. You know, a four-year-old can't understand really all that a dad is. But when she is, you know, graduating from high school and she sees other dads with their daughter, she's going to be like, oh, that's what a dad does. Hmm. For my boys, when they became a father, when they got married, when they had all these really big milestone moments, you think these are huge celebration moments, and they are, but in, in all of them. There is somebody that you dearly wish was there celebrating with you. And we may not even say it audibly now anymore. We don't say it every time, you know, every Christmas or every Thanksgiving or every graduation, but it's there. And we all know it. We've all of us walked this together and feel it. Yeah. How incredibly difficult. Well, I am so, so sorry for your loss. And I think you're so right to point out it's been 10 years, but even still, it feels long and short, right? In those, in those ten years, how? I mean, every timeline is so different. I think that's maybe what's most difficult about grief is like there's no prescriptive timeline for when things will start to feel better, or when a new normal will be reached, or you know, fill in the blank, or when you can feel like you can smile again, like you were saying. Was there a turning point for you or for your kids? where you felt like there was kind of a shift in settling into what is and accepting that in order to be able to continue on in a new hopeful way. It was a process. There was no one moment. It was a continual process. And, you know, for me, it's not like my kids ever said, oh, I I finally have arrived. So I'm not sure when that happened for them. For, for me, it took a lot longer than I thought. I really thought, you know, give us, give us a year, let us get through every first without him and we'll be okay. And I realized, in fact, somebody had told me right on the brink of our second year, um, she had also walked through a really hard loss. And she said, you know, some people find the second year harder in a lot of ways. Mm. And I did want that to be a self-fulfilling prophecy, but I was grateful she had told me that because when it did feel harder, I was glad that it wasn't, that it was normal because I think I would have said I should be feeling better. I should be doing better. I shouldn't be feeling these things. I should be farther than I am right now. But knowing that this was common was, um, was very comforting, you know, to know that it was okay and that I was still moving forward, even though it still felt very hard. But it was a process. It's two things. I always say, like, it's holding both hands out and saying, letting go of, of the life that you wanted in one hand and embracing the life that you have in the other hand. And it is an everyday, because you keep you keep bumping into new ways that you've lost. You know, it's not just like the loss of a husband or a father. It's, it's the loss of your dreams and the loss of um, his friends and the loss of just so, you know, so many losses you keep bumping into. And as you do, you have to continue to process, but it's the more you do that, the easier you find, you find that you are embracing the life that you have more and more. Mm -hmm. And it's easier and it doesn't take as much to let go of the life that you wanted. And you know that you're moving forward. Mm, yeah. Tell me about Lisa before this happened in terms of the way that you envisioned the future, made goals, um, maybe as a family culture, you you know looked forward to certain things. And has this shifted anything in the way that you anticipate the future and dream and plan 
and just accept that you're going to be navigating a lot of unexpected waters? I don't know that I had so many goals written out. I just um, thought that life would play out, that we would continue doing this parenting thing together, that we would, we had just launched our oldest into college. Mm. So, you know, naive me was like, oh, okay, so we just have to do this six more times and we'll be, <laughs> we'll be good. Um, and so becoming a single parent was really just learning all over again how to parent. It was learning all over again how I was just desperate to, to know how to do that. But, you know, I, I think that, you know, when your bucket list is just gone for a, for a while from me, I didn't even want to make a bucket list. I was like, what's the use? Because the one that I had just imploded and doesn't matter anymore. But I think that's a normal part of grief and letting go what you don't have. It feels really, really good to be able to wake up one day and say, wow, I'm actually excited about this day. And, mm. oh, I have, I actually have a plan for next week and it feels really fun or I'm, you know, one of the things that was a huge turning point for me actually was taking my kids to the Grand Canyon. So we are, we're in Florida. I always wanted to take my kids out to the Grand Canyon and, um, I kept putting it off. In fact, I planned the trip twice and then I kind of, I just got scared about doing it on my own, which sounds silly now, but at the time it was a big trip that I was taking by myself, these kids. And the third time I did it, I just got in the car and we drove out there and once I, I just it was as beautiful of course I remembered it as a kid it was as beautiful as I remembered and it's fun introducing it to them as I wanted it to be but what I realized was that when we step out and um, overcome that fear that it really gives us bravery to do other things and so that was really I think a turning point for me to say, let's put other things on the bucket list. Let's put other trips on the bucket list. Let's put other, you know, um, things on the bucket list together. The other thing that was super hard for me was um, realizing that the, the, the vision for my kids really didn't change. So much of our family rhythm was upended hmm. because our family rhythm was in large part geared around my husband's work schedule. You know, when he came home at night, we would have dinner together. And a lot of that you don't, you don't think about, it's just the way you organize life. And, you know, weekends were when he was home or, you know, going on trips with him as he traveled. When he wasn't in the picture, we could eat anytime we wanted, you know, and it became very, <laughs> and it felt like he was on a business trip. So mm -hmm. it was like, oh, we can eat in front of the TV. That would be easy. Um, so, but realizing that even though so many of our rhythms had changed, that the vision that we had for our children, you know, the people that we wanted them to be, the kind of education we wanted them to have, the character that we wanted to form in them, um, that hadn't changed. And so to continue to like really grow a spine and to to show up to do that hmm. was, was really helpful. Yeah. That's really, really beautiful. You mentioned having to learn to parent differently. That's so interesting to me. Tell me how, aside from just like assuming more to do's and responsibilities, how did your parenting change as a single parent? When there's, when there's any kind of situation that puts you into single parenthood, all the relationships shift a little bit, okay. um, which you wouldn't think right away, but they do. And so I think 
for my oldest, you know, it's, and, and we have to be careful as moms not to put any of our children in a position of authority or super, super helpful, like counting on them to really, really help where they become, where we, where we burden them really with a position that's not meant for them. And so I was aware of that. I was aware not to make any of my older children, you know, step up to any kind of position for the younger children, but that that was mine to carry. That burden was mine to carry. Um, and yet, for instance, um, I found my third, who was the oldest boy at home at the time that Dan um, passed away, because my oldest was at college. So he, he actually went back. He was, you know, he didn't, he wasn't in the home as much because he was um, away at camp. He had come home and then he went back to, um, counseling all summer at camp. And so he wasn't with the rest of us as we were grieving together. But that third one, I could see him kind of stepping up. And in fact, he'd gotten accepted to a college several years later, he got accepted to his dream school Hmm. and he turned him down. And I was like, what? You can't do this. And he didn't say it, but I knew the reason was he felt like he needed to stay at home and go to school and help. And whatever that looked like, whatever help looked like. And I knew that was the case. And I really just had to put my foot down and say, you can't give up this dream. This is a once in a lifetime. You cannot do that. It's not going to be the same experience for you. You need to do that and give him permission. Um, The other big thing for single parenting is, um, well, I mentioned growing a spine. I think so many times we can, when we're feeling weak in a decision, that it's easy to lean on the other parent to be that person who can step up and be strong, you know, and toe the line. And for me, you know, my, my kids wouldn't really argue with their dad. It's not that he was, he was mean. It's just, he was six foot three dad, you know, Mm -hmm. and if he said something, they received it differently, but they would argue with me. And I felt like many times that they were going to especially my teen and tween boys, that they were really going to run over me. And I don't think they intentionally did that. It's just that it's just a different, different relationship with the mom. Hmm. And so I really had to tell myself, you've got to grow a spine and you've got to let your no be no, and you can't argue and you can't let them argue. And I had to really kind of change that at the same time for my daughter, I couldn't be this like strong spine person that I was for my kid, for my boys. She needed somebody who was really soft and she needed somebody who was open, would talk about things with her. So when you're a single parent, you're like all of those. You're the good cop and the bad cop all the time. There's nobody, you know, you're on the clock all the time. You're the late night person and the early morning person. You're the encourager and the disciplinarian. You just wear every hat and switching between those as each child has needs stretches us beyond anything we can handle on our own. So just crying out for wisdom for me was huge. Mm. That is so powerful. Thank you so much for sharing that. And for people that are listening that, you know, aren't in your shoes and haven't walked where you walk, but maybe they know somebody that is a single parent for whatever reason, this perspective really helps to understand the day-to-day that they might be facing and how we can kind of step in to help. Is there any, a tip or two that you can pinpoint of ways that 
I or somebody that's listening can support a single parent, how can we show up not just in the immediate aftermath of a, of a tragedy, but in an ongoing way to show love and support for them? That's a great question. So I think the best thing to do is just to say, not how can I help because she'll probably, or call me when you need help because Mm -hmm. she will probably never call you. Mm -hmm. Um, We all know we've all been in that situation. You know, we want to call, but it's just, it's just awkward. So the best things you could do are things like, Hey, I'm going to bring, you know, can I bring so-and-so home from football practice? I'm headed that way. Or it's just, you know, and really don't give them an option. Really say, Hey, I'm headed your way. I'm, can I bring so-and-so home from football practice? Helping them with the taxiing duties because you're only one parent and you know how many times we divide that, you know, dad goes here and mom goes there. You can't do that. Yeah. And so helping them be there. I mean, that was another huge thing people did for my kids as they showed up to cheer them on at their games. Mm. And it felt so good when I, that I was not the only one in the stands cheering them on. Um, they did that for a long time after Dan passed away. And so to fall, you know, to be with that single parent, not just in that first year, but knowing that it could be the third year, the fourth year. And then I think to um, just understand sometimes the bandwidth of the single mom. For me, there were a lot of times I had one friend say, you never call me anymore. And she, she was very offended. And I said, I don't call anybody anymore. I just, I mean, all I could do was my my children. I had seven children and they had something pretty much every night of the week. You know, we were doing church stuff. I was teaching Sunday school. That was one thing that I was doing. I was teaching a ladies class and I loved, but other than that, that was my plate. And I really didn't have a lot of time on my own. And so if you are a friend of somebody who is now walking a season she didn't expect, and this can happen a lot of ways, right? Chronic illness, um, a diagnosis for somebody in her family where she's now caretaking, just know that her, you know, if she's not texting you and calling you and going, meeting you for coffee, uh, be that person just will text her and mm. invite her for coffee or say, I know we don't, I know you may not have time, but I'm thinking of you today, you know, find a way to, to maintain that friendship. Yeah, that is so good. So allowing for the changes and the dynamics to shift and realizing, listen, like they have they have a lot more on their plate. They're juggling a lot more. And it's certainly not personal if you're not calling back, but to extend the invitation. And even if it's, you know, rejected a lot of the time simply because there's not a lot of extra bandwidth available, I'm sure that invitation just meant a lot. So that is such, such good food for thought. So you have a new book coming out, Life Can Be Good Again. And I wanted to ask, who is this book for and why did you want to write this book? Yeah, this book is for that woman who is facing shattering loss and whose life, who's, who's walking a life she never expected and never wanted mm. and would probably give back if she could. And she's wondering, how in the world am I going to move forward? And will I ever truly be happy again? Whatever somebody had said to me, you know, who had gone through her own difficulty, her own deep loss, very different. Um, it was somebody who was living, but uh, there had been a deep loss there. And she said, you know, after that, I never felt really bad again, but I never felt really good again. Mm. And I thought, oh, 
I don't want to live the rest of my life on indifference. I don't want to go neutral just to anesthetize this pain now. And it's worth it for me to feel really, really happy, genuinely bubbled up happiness, you know, from deep down in my soul. I want to feel that again. So this is for her. How do we walk through it? How do we get there knowing that life can be good again? So good. Where can people find you online and definitely pick up your new book? So uh, the best place to find me is at my site, which is lisaapolo.com. That is two P's and one L. Um, I'm on Instagram at lisaapolo. And yeah, you can find my book wherever at your local bookshop. Hopefully they will have it and stock it and wherever online books are sold. So good. Lisa, this has been such an encouraging conversation. Thank you for sharing your journey. I'm so sorry. It has been so difficult in so many ways, but I love the beauty for Ash's story out of all of this and just seeing your family online and everything, just what a life that you've continued to create with them. And I just think that is so, so beautiful and gives so many people so much hope like you have been talking about. I always ask my guests one final question and it's this, Lisa, what would you tell your pre-motherhood self? That is a great question. I would tell her to enjoy her children more and not to worry that what they're manifesting today is going to be like some huge thing down the road. Mm -hmm. I hope that makes sense. Just to enjoy them today, disciple them, instruct them, but not worry so much that that acting out, that issue she's frustrated over, that she's instructed over and over again, is going to pan out to some huge life issue. Mm-hmm. I just think there's, you know, as kids grow up, they just go through stages. And if we are parenting well, if we are modeling well, if we are praying for them, if we are leading them well, and giving them a healthy, warm home, they're going to make it through those stages. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is one of the most difficult things about parenting is that there's so many new challenges that are constantly coming up. And then as soon as you kind of figure out a kid or figure out a situation, you're like, all right, there's always something new around the corner and they change or the situation changes. And it's like, God, nothing is staying the same. But I think that's what keeps us, I don't know, just invigorated on this journey if we allow it to it can drain us or it can invigorate us and you're so right if we can keep that in in perspective that there are seasons and stages of everything and to not yeah be weighed down too much by any one wrong or one season or one hardship it'll that too shall pass right yes it it really does yeah and it's, it's holding both things. We both have to um, give a consequence or instruct or, you know, walk them through. But we also don't need to make it more than it is. Mm. Sometimes it's just a child having a bad day. Yeah. You know, or it's just childish immaturity. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's right. That is so good. Well, thank you so much for sharing your parenting wisdom. I love talking to moms that are a little bit beyond where I am, and I just learned so much from women like you. So thank you, Lisa, for sharing, and I'm so excited for your new book, Life Can Be Good Again. Congratulations. Thank you so much for having me, Jessica. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it.
I'm just always so impressed with women like Lisa who can go through some of life's most unimaginable challenges and you think, how am I going to possibly get through this? And how am I even going to get through it well and have joy again? And so she's just such a testament that no matter what you've been through, what you're going through, what you might go through, you can endure the hardest of things and come out on the other side strong and self-aware and full of joy and love. And yes, the loss is there. The hole is there. The memory of whoever that is is still there. But there's still a rich life to be had as long as you are living. I love that message so much. So thank you, Lisa, for sharing your story. I'll link to where you can find her and find her book on ExtraordinaryMomsPodcast.com. If you don't already follow me on Instagram, you can do that at JessicaDalkwas3. And I'm just so grateful you're here. Thanks for tuning in today, and we'll see you next week for another episode with another Extraordinary Mom. Bye.